Blog Talk Radio. to another episode of Beyond the Cover. I am one of your hosts, John Robb. Of course, and I'm here with my good friend, Jeff Ayers. Jeff, how you doing? Doing great. I guess I'm the other one of the hosts. Yes, you are the other one because we only have two. <laughs> We're on one half, you're okay. the other half. Can't have a quarter. But we do have an outstanding show that we put together. This is a roundtable discussion. We're doing something a little different. And we have two fabulous best-selling authors on Friends of Both of Ours, Authors John Land, of course, his Caitlin Strong series, and Allison Brennan, um, that she does her Lucy um, Kincaid series. And both of them are here to kind of talk about, you know, industry things, news things, trends, books, just, you know, things that readers might not get, see, understand, some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. So I think it's going to be a really great hour that we're going to have here um, to kind of just talk about everything. So you ready, Jeff? I am. This hour is going to fly by. It is. And one thing I want to remind everybody, too, is that all of our shows are brought to you by Kensington Books, so please make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on their books and all of their authors. So let's get into it. Let's have our guests join us now. So Allison and John, we want to thank you guys so much for joining us. How are you guys doing tonight? Good. Thank you for having us. Likewise. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Again, you know, this is one of these discussions that we kind of like to get around and just kind of talk because a lot of readers and people don't know kind of the industry. You know, you, you get, I get emails of questions, and you probably get emails if a book turns into a movie. They're like, how could you pick Tom Cruise for Jack Reacher? Yeah, like Lee Child had anything to do with that. Um, <laughs> you know, and so you, you, you see these things, and so we kind of wanted to kind of get an idea from you guys, because you guys see it every day, you live it, you know, you breathe it, you, you have it there, and we just kind of wanted to maybe throw some topics out that are interesting to, you know, maybe educate, talk about, just have some fun with. Um, Jeff, let's just throw the first one out there, let's see what we got. So either John or Allison, whichever you want to do, let's just start talking about this. The one thing that I wanted to know is, like, where do you see, like, the latest trends in books? And the reason I say that is because almost everything I start seeing now has the girl in the cafe or something on the cover. You're starting to see <laughs> these trends, like with the vampires and the zombies. So it's like, what are you guys seeing from your point of view as authors? Well, um, okay, I'll jump in first. First, okay. first of all, I think it's really hard to define trends simply because uh, readers are very cyclical. So when I first started writing in 2002, and I sold my first book in 2004, and it was published in 2006, at that time I was told, oh, you can't write romantic suspense for a major house. You have to write for Harlequin. So being the dutiful, good person that I was, oh, okay, I'll go submit my story to Harlequin. And I got a nice rejection letter, and it basically said, this isn't a romance. <laughs> and I'm like going, well, but it's romantic suspense. Well, apparently you have to get the hero and heroine on the page together like in the first chapter or something, and that wasn't what I was doing. So I did end up selling to Ballantyne. And I was told romantic suspense is dead, you're never going to be able to sell this, and I sold a three-book deal that hit the New York Times list. So I try not to listen to what other people say simply because they're only looking at what is there today. Now, with self-publishing, you could publish what is hot today, and you could publish it next month, but I can guarantee you that if you write a book in a month and you publish it because it's hot, it's going to be crap, unless it's something you already have in your computer and you're just waiting for the trend to happen. <laughs> and what are the odds of that? <laughs> Play the freaking lottery if you're doing that. I don't know. I have four books that I never publish, but they're crap, so I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> I think when you look at, at, at trends, uh, uh, trends are based on industry, uh, on the realities of the industry. And the industry has changed so much in the past six or seven years. We've lost 5,000 mall, uh, mall bookstores and borders. Yep. 
Um, we've lost the, the paperback industry, the mass market industry, which is what I grew up on. My career, whatever success I've achieved, has been almost has been based primarily on mass market. And mass market is pretty much a dead thing now as well. So you're looking for ways when you look at when you talk about trends. It's it's not so much. There are two different ways to answer that question. One is the is the whole hybrid model where authors are taking more charge of their own careers, and the ones who are even becoming modest success as as Kindle Direct, as Kindle Select, as this and that, are doing better than a lot of traditionally published authors because advances have shrunk so much. So I think one of the trends is authors taking a more vested interest in in their own careers and more control of their own careers because now at publishers – there's there is no mid list anymore. There is there is a bestseller every month from every from every line, and there's everything else, and there's really nothing in the middle. To get a, so to a, respond to that, think, well, explain so that, that real quick, John. For for people listening, explain like what do you mean by a bestseller, and then everybody else, and there's no mid list. What what, well, what do you mean by that? Thing. So people okay. are understanding. Well, it's a very good question. You you a publisher. There are. Five major publishers, and there in within those publishers, there are say, 18, fifteen to eighteen, maybe as many twenty imprints. All of those imprints have a top title every month or every season. You know, with and they're all fighting. All those imprints are fighting for the same space in bookstores. You, bookstores can only display so many books. There are only some room for so many books on the new fiction table at Barnes & Noble and even less room on the 30% off face out as you walk into the store. That's paid space. Publishers pay for that space. But they can't get all their books in there. They can only get, at most, probably one a month. So... You have that one book that is going to get all the attention that the publisher has. It's going to get all the money because it has, they're putting the co-op, which means they're paying for that space, just like if you go into a supermarket at eye level, if you see the Oreos, that's because Nabisco has paid for that space. So now that there are less bookstores, now that there are less outlets selling books, and now bookstores have to become very cognizant of which titles they can sell out and sell into stores successfully. So if you're not that one author every month, or two, or three at most at the bigger houses, that leaves you spine out when you're in the store, which means you are a destination buy. What do I mean by that? If I walk into a bookstore and I see books well displayed, that makes me wonder, ooh, wow, I want to pick that book up. I want to see, know more about it. But if I'm going into a store to buy, unfortunately, a John Land book a lot, um, not all the time, but, but too, many, too much of the time, I've got to be going in that store to buy it as a destination buy. I'm going in because I'm not going to see it displayed. So the challenge from a business standpoint in the publishing industry in taking charge of your own career, is to find ways to compensate for that reality. And there is no way getting around it. From a creative standpoint, and I think when you look at books like The Girl on the Train and um, that other one that did so well last year um, at the same Gone time, Girl. it was always number two. Yeah, the Gone, well, no, there was another one. That was years um, ago. Yeah, but Gone Girl oh. was a long time. But, oh, but in a The dark, Girl dark on the Train, and, and it, but whatever it was, yeah. What you're seeing is, a re- in some ways, a lot of these books I'm talking about are very the, the ones that are successful, the ones that are bestsellers, are very formulaic. They are parts of series. They are branded series, and I'm guilty of this because I have a branded series. Allison has a branded series. This is this is one of the ways you respond to that. But if your branded series is not getting you, or um, or you have to start a series um, from at some point. What you, I think what we're seeing in a lot of these books is the formula is no formula. People are looking for new ways to break out, and that's one of the trends. A lot of hybrid publishing, uh, a lot of mixing of genres, a lot of you know, um, 
you, you do see a lot of written with things where, where authors are trying to expand their reach. The problem with written with series are that the only market for them is really if you have already have an existing big name. So, so someone like Brad Meltzer just started one with Todd Goldberg, for example. Brad Meltzer can do it with anybody he wants because the book is being sold a la, P, a la James Patterson, a la Clive Cussler. So the two things I would say, there's a lot more, but just those two, just to highlight those two, are um, relevance, which I'll come back to a lot tonight, finding ways to be relevant in, in other ways of selling your books, and also writing different kinds of books to break the mold so you stand out more. And I think there's probably a combination there. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with John, except to the point that I don't think most authors who are self-publishing are doing well. I think it's exactly like traditional publishing. There's going to be a few that do it's extremely true. well, and those are either, A, the people that have had a solid midless career, but either lost their contract or weren't getting the placement that they wanted, who then took their extensive backlist. I'm thinking like Barbara Freethy and Bella Andre and a few others, and most of them were romance authors, who then self-published. Like Barbara had like 25 books she had the rights back to. They were award winners. They, they did well. And she basically had a plan, and she self-published them, and then she launched a new series that was self-published, and she has done extremely well. But she also had that core readership, and she got on board early on in the ebook boom. And then you have a few that, because of their marketing skill and the fact that they are writing good books and having their books well edited and well packaged. Great point. Liliana Hart, for example, she was never able to break in. She was an excellent writer. I know her personally. I've read her stuff. She's fantastic. She couldn't break in for some reason. I think because she kind of came as the market was crashing, like in 2009 and 10, the market kind of crashed as ebooks started to rise, and right. publishers and borders and all that stuff. Um, she then said, you know what, I'm going to do it myself, damn it. And she did. She had great covers. She hired an outside developmental editor. She packaged her books perfectly for her market, and she has done phenomenal. And she's never compromised quality. And I think what you see now is people like her are do, still doing well, but they're now being picked up. She has a series coming out from Pocketbooks. Um, Barbara Freethy is still doing well. You, and, I, but I think, and Bella Andre got a print deal, print only, from Harlequin. So she controls all of her wow. ebook rights, but Harlequin's printing her books to get them on the shelf. And so she's making additional revenue. So I think it's important to look at what is successful in sense, but recognize that there is a glut out there in being able to be discovered. You have to be good at marketing. And I'm not. I don't want to market my books. I want to write my books, and then I want somebody else to do the work. And I know that's kind of naive to say. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, with that last statement, absolutely. I'm the same way. I'm not very. I do. I do Twitter. I do a little Facebook, but I'm not a professional at marketing. I'm a fresh, professional at writing. What I would say is, Allison's point's excellent, and it leads in perfectly. I wanted to make one more comment on this before we move on, and that is, there is a new model emerging in traditional publishing, and that is profit sharing agreements, where you sign a deal with a smaller boutique house that does that has distribution often through a larger publisher. And instead of getting advance, you share a much higher royalty. It's not so much right. a contract as a profit-sharing arrangement. Usually it's 50-50. And in, it, it, the models vary by different, by different reputable – these are all reputable publishers. Um, and they're very, you know, very well-funded. They're well-financed. They're well-run. They have great distribution. So there's a trend. There is a hybrid model between the self-publishing model that I agree 100% for every one author, for every Bob Dagoni, for every Mark Isaki, um who, who, who hits on Amazon, there are a thousand who don't. Um, you know, for every Sylvia Day and for every Liliana Hart, there's, there's a thousand names you've never heard of um, who are giving away their books for free or selling them for 99 cents and, and making very little money. Um, but there is this model that I think is going to become that I think you're going to start seeing making its way into traditional publishing where the the advance is non-existent so the publisher is not on the on the risk for any money up front they are only 
at they're only committing to publish the book, market the book, but they're not committing to a big advance. So I think there is a mid-ground that you're going to see becoming a more and more popular publishing model. Which was our which is what our publishing some... model. That's what and that's what our publishing model is except we're more along the lines of 80/20, but it's about the same thing. Exactly. Well, and, and, and again, value. You know, there's some value to it, but I but we have to recognize that um, first of all, the reason why I'm not a self-published author, I have self-published several stories, and I actually have a self-published um, two novella um, book coming out at the end of June. Right. But the reason why I'm not doing that is because I'm making more money in traditional publishing, not just because of print and digital. I'm willing to give up higher royalties in order because in the end, I'm still making more money traditionally, and every author needs to look at it from their own you know, point of view. The other thing is, honestly, this is my full-time job. I've been writing full-time since 2005. I've been very lucky that I've been able to do that, but I still have five kids that I have to get through college. And so Jeez. I have to have health care. <laughs> yeah, and pay for oh, – don't even get me started. Oh, my God. You don't even, oh, oh God, God, shit. Don't do it, John. <laughs> Worst day to bring it up to me. Oh my gosh! It anyway. took 15 minutes for the word healthcare. <laughs> uh, just I was just following a natural. Pro- just to, 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 the lead-in was perfect. I mean, I you know it's like it was. Uh, just a lot it of money. Was. Allison opened the door. You walked on through. Well, this is let me ask you both a question here. Let me ask you both a question here. Since we're talking about hybrid publishing, we're talking about eBooks, talking about traditional. And the truth is, if you look back, say, five years ago, by now the physical book was supposed to be dead, you know, <laughs> going the way of the dinosaur. So in this whole universe, how do, how do you, you as an author define success, and oh. how is that different from what your publisher is telling you is success? That, oh, well, that I, can, is... I can honestly say that success is, <laughs> I hate to say it, it's, based on copies sold, not copies you give away, not copies that you sell for 99 cents or whatever, I mean, unless you sell like 2 million of them, but it's really based on can, for me, now this is my personal thing for success, can I make a living writing? Can I write books and make a living and support my family? To me, if I can do that, then I'm successful. But I think we, you can say that in any industry. If you're working at any job, and you can't support your family, you're not going to consider yourself successful. And to me, that's kind of how I define success. I would love to win awards. I would love to, you know, get peer recognition. But in the end, I recognize that the only thing that matters is the bottom line. And that's kind of how I define success. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I, I agree. I think what Allison just said, just, you know, record that, and that is as good an answer as you're ever going to hear that I would define success exactly the same way. But if you're not a perennial New York Times best-selling author, you know, if you're not selling, you have to look you you have to be able to work to maximize what is in your control to to define your success. Like I know before a book is published that it's very what its chances are of making the New York Times, whether it has any chance at all. Well, I can't only have one goal. I have, and that means that if there's, if there's not enough copies in print and the distribution is not substantial enough to get the numbers out, I have to do everything in my control to continue to keep the publisher excited about me, for whatever I'm selling, that I have a value to them that extends beyond the number of books sold. So I have won, you know, I've been lucky in the last few years, I've won a ton of awards. Um, I, don't, I haven't won the Pulitzer, I haven't run the Pen, you know, the, the, the Pen, the Robert Pen, the, the Pen Award, but I've won a number of awards that make, that help me, again, there's this word relevant to the publisher. Because if there's a prestige, there's an esteem to, to being able to say it's a, this is a, the Caitlin Strong series is award-winning. We can't say it's a New York Times best-selling series, but we can say it, it, you know, it's a best-selling series in some regards, and it's award-winning. You have to take charge of what you are capable of controlling. And I can enter contests, and I can write the best book I can possibly write. The problem is the best book I can possibly write 
is not going to be guaranteed the placement it needs to gain the success I would like to think that it deserves. So, but I think what Allison said is if you're not supporting your family, if you're not making a living, if you're not paying the mortgage, then you're not successful. And, 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 and that I would say that about any industry, just like she said. So I would really echo everything Allison said in, in terms of that definition. You know, the one thing that how I define success is I let other people define it for me when they want to look in because I don't look at I, – I always think that I'm successful as long as I wake up in the morning. It doesn't make a difference what I do. So I always – people would look at me and say, oh, wow, John, you have this and this and this. Wow, you're really successful. Okay, well, thank you. So that's kind of the way that I do it. I never define my own success. I always say let someone else just tell me, oh, you're successful or, oh, why don't you do this to do this. That's just the kind of way I look at it because – I'm never one of those big goal setters because I never want to not hit it because then I'll just be disappointed. <laughs> so I don't do it. I don't set a goal. I just say, this is what I'm going to do. This is what happens. It happens. Um, I just I would like say, go with I, the flow and do things like that. I would say me. to that point, though, I think I would say to that, to, to that point, part of being a success in, in, in this industry, which is, which is so difficult, um, is the willingness to rebrand and redefine yourself. In the past few years, I, I've gotten into nonfiction. I've looked for alternative options for, for my fiction. I, I still define myself based on Caitlin Strong. That's the brand. That's what I want to build as much as possible. And if, it's, if there's a movie or a TV show, overnight everything will change in the same way it changed for Craig Johnson when he did the Longmire series. Um, you know, that, everything will change overnight. But short of that, I got into nonfiction not because I wanted to, but because I felt I had to. I've chased other opportunities um, that I ordinarily would not chase because I need to, to define that success. Because I can't get by, to Allison's point earlier, writing one Caitlin Strong book a year. There isn't enough money. So, and there isn't, and I have to never, in this business, never put your eggs all in one basket because then if that series fails if that series starts to decline i am no longer relevant and i have no place to go but if i have staked a claim in other areas if i have broadened my horizons um and, and look this is part of the redefinition of the industry and i'm not immune to this um pretty much everyone even the bigger authors uh, with the exception of the iconic authors to an extent, I guess, I don't know for sure, are getting smaller advances, less money up front um, to live on. So whereas some authors like me maybe could have gotten through, right, gotten by writing one book a year not too long ago, seven, eight, six, seven, eight, nine years ago, now I can't get by writing one book a year anymore. But I'm going to tell you something. It has been a wonderful experience to stretch and broaden the horizons. And some of the best work I've done is not because I necessarily wanted to do it initially, but because I had to do it or, or, or chose to do it to, to expand a little bit, and that work became some of the best stuff I ever did. Well, and as I've always written three books a year, because, you know, I can't stand to be bored, but one of the things <laughs> that I... That's well, being a Giants fan, you get a lot of, and being a Giants fan, you kind of get a lot of time to write since the games are over and around the third or fourth inning. <laughs> You're a Dodger fan, be quiet. You know what? By the way, by the way, I, I just want to remind you that oh shit, here we go, eleven, thirteen, fifteen. It's the final World Series game. That is all that matters. Just, just saying, just laying that out there. It's ten, twelve, and, fourteen. And, by the way. No wait, and I got his. Oh, ten, twelve, fourteen. See, I'm not about. a Giants fan, so I forgot. I, I, I always think of the Giants on a more odd year than an even. So. I'm okay, a Cardinal fan. Really they always beat this. us to get there. No, you yeah, got to remember. And the Cardinals beat us. Is that yeah, last year the Giants were just where the Dodgers were, number one, up twelve games, doing yep, just fabulous, were. and it imploded after the All Star break. So I'm yep, just going to remind did. you, and they you continued that trend all the way through the beginning of this year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Dodgers will emulate it, but anyway, Allison, you were going to say something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> was I? I don't know. He threw me off. No. Um, 
I, I think what is really important, I mean, John makes a great point. Sometimes you have to reinvent yourself. I remember um, Jane Ann Krentz had this article, and it was absolutely fabulous, and had I only read it before I started a supernatural thriller series, I would never have written the series. She basically said, your readers, they want more of the same. You know, they, they want different books, but they want you to deliver the same kind of story because that's what they expect from you. So when she wrote a couple paranormal books, and she loved the stories, and I read them, and that's actually how I discovered her, because they were so different, and they were more like fantasy kind of books. She lost so many readers. That's how she invented Amanda Quick. She completely reinvented herself. Now, I think, and now she writes under three names, Amanda Quick, Jane Castle, and Jane Ann Krentz, all successful. And I think the key thing to remember that is she has talent. She has talent, and she was able to parlay that talent into three completely different genres that all deliver the same kind of emotional story that she, her readers come to expect. And so when John says to, you know, you have to go pursue opportunities, maybe reinvent yourself, try to find other avenues to get your work out there or to do something a little different, the core point is you still have to write a good book. And I think because of the glut in the market today, so many people think it's easy to write a good book. And huh. it's not. You have to write the book. You have to edit the not book. Easy. You have to hire an editor. You have, if you're, if you're going to go the self-publishing route, you have to deliver a good product or you're never going to build your readership. And for traditionally published authors, you have to consistently write a, create a good product and every book you need to strive to be better than the last. Because you're really only competing with yourself. You're not competing. I'm not competing with John. I'm not competing with Lisa Gardner. That would be awful. I mean, it's like Madison Bumgarner is not competing with Clayton Kershaw. They're both great pitchers. They have to be the best pitcher they can be. You have to be the best storyteller you can be. And if Lisa Gardner does great, that's actually good for me because she writes one book a year, and her readers are going to want to read another book that maybe has the same kind of dark emotional suspense that she writes and hopefully they'll look for me so that's good so anyway i just wanted to get that out that it really really does start no matter what you're doing with a good book now now the one things that i've heard both of you say which i which i agree with 100 percent is the writing has to be good however what we've seen out there with sales let's just throw out like 50 shades of gray and some other books some very very popular best-selling mega success books are written like shit because do the readers really care if the writing is that good or do they really really just care more about the story and the characters and the other thing that i'm going to add on that is do they really care if it's a thought-provoking thriller and i'm talking on a global scale of bestsellers because yes i think that some readers do but I see a lot of the time now in these thrillers that technology is actually a crutch and it makes an author lazy because so many things now are a coincidence. It just happens to be on my cell phone. I just happen to get an email. I just happen to have this. It's just like all right there for, you know, the, for the author to just kind of throw out there. So do you guys kind of watch those things when you write where there's not so many coincidences, where there's not so many things, and do you – bang your head against the wall and say, how the hell did this book get so popular because the writing is just so bad? I don't worry I don't about think other... you, I, I don't think you can bang your head against the wall and try – because if you try to hook on to a trend, by the time your book is published, the trend is already over. So I think if you, you basically have to stay within yourself, you know, it goes back to what uh, uh, Samuel Goldwyn once said, about movies, give me the same thing, only different. And that goes to Allison's point. If you're writing a series, you need to be consistent with the thing. But what you're getting at, John, is you're getting at the fact that people will buy brands. They will buy brands out of loyalty and out of consistency. Um, they, will buy, they will buy Clive Cussler is a best-selling author on his own. He's also a best-selling author with the four or five other authors who write with him. James Patterson is doing, has had every book he does on his own, and, and even with the 12 or 15 or however many it is, co-authors he has, they are all New York Times best-selling books. People, the same people, to a large extent, are buying the entire series. Are, is it because they're good 
No, it's because if it's they're buying a name. They're buying Patterson. If someone else had written the identical book, it would never have been published because most of them are terrible. Most of them are awful. They are formulaic to the point of insanity, and, in, and na- they're just inane because you can just know what's going to happen on every chapter because you read the book before, and it's, it's, you're just thinking – it's kind of like a ma- – it's like just plugging in the, the names and, and the things. But people buy them over and over and over again because of brand recognition. So how do you beat brand recognition? You have to become – a brand in your own right, and you have to build that brand. And I think what Allison was getting at before, and this is very important, you can't, it's very, very difficult to do it alone. You need a publisher that believes in you, and you need and a publisher that's not going to quit on you if they don't get the sales that they want, if the book underperforms. It is tr- basically, we, we are... We are Good point. Authors are prisoners of their numbers. If I, if Barnes and Noble orders five thousand hardcovers of mine, and they sell twenty five hundred, the next book they're going to take twenty five hundred hardcovers or a percentage of the twenty five hundred they sold. So if you you're not going to get the same order if you don't produce the numbers. We are this is a numbers driven game, and that's the issue that we all face. And you know you can't you know if you if you look at products, you, Ford and, and, and Lexus and every car brand doesn't just mi- manufacture cars. They have detailed campaigns and rollouts, the same thing with, with big movies. The problem is there are far less cars being manufactured and far less movies being released than there are books being published commercially and released. Well, you know, there were a million books, over a million books published last year, 50,000 by, you know, it were actually distributed, you know, what with at a fair at some level. That is a lot of 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 competition out there. And Allison's right. I'm not competing with her, or I'm not. Comp- I'm competing against myself to an extent. But that is the, the, that that's the aesthetic way of looking at it. The reality is, I am competing, and we are competing with each other. The month we come out for that store space, that floor space, that shelf space. Because if we're going to make the numbers, we have to get the numbers out. Yeah, and that's increasingly harder um, as the bookstores have contracted. And also the the wholesaling and distribution, that's one reason why mass market has done so poorly lately. And I have one mass market series and one hardcover series. So it's really hard to go out and realize, gosh, I used to sell – Opening week, 18,000 copies at Walmart. No problem. And now it's like I'm lucky to sell 18,000 copies in the first three months. Now, partly I think it's because mass market readers tend to have moved over to ebook because it's a cheaper format. That's, I think, the primary reason mass market constricted. And then as the market constricted, the bookstore is going to, hey, we have all these returns. We're not going to order as many. So then it constricts more. If the books are not on the shelves, they're not going to be bought. Mass market has traditionally been an impulse buy. So as the books have shrunk, they have fewer books. I used to have 60 books at my grocery store. Now there's only 20. And because the market for the mass market has completely shrunk. You know, Walmart used to order, you know, 16 to 20 copies um, for every store. And I'm lucky to get eight in the store for opening week, for a series that has done very, very well for Walmart. So I just think, you know, it is hard. And John, John's absolutely right. If you, it's the numbers. Now, fortunately, I've been able to make up those losses in the e-books. And obviously the publishers make a lot more money on e-book than they do on the print. So yeah, um, you know, I've been able to stay contracted. <laughs> but I'm, it's not like I'm going to do the series forever because um, I'm not. You know, I have other ideas for them. Well, um, b- before I ask my question, I just want to clarify here. So I have to write the best I can until I establish my brand, then I can write shit. Is that right? No. I said God would say yes, but no, I'm going to say no. no. That, so you, you have to you establish your brand so you can hire other people to write shit for you. To write shit. Okay, thanks for clarifying. And, hey, oh, and, and even and when you're dead, you can still have people write shit for you. 
Absolutely. Death, death has true. very little to do. Your career, Robert Ludlum's career has thrived since he died. There are people, you know, it's, it, it's you know, Clancy. there's, yeah, Clancy was never, Clancy's better now since he died. Vince Flynn <laughs> is now coming back. Yeah, and Vin, you know, well, Vince Flynn's books were terrific when he wrote them, and yeah. they they have not lost a beat since Kyle Mills has taken over the series. That's a very yeah. unusual situation and a tragic situation. And we, you know, yeah. Simon and Schuster, Atria deserves a lot of credit for how they handled that, um, and and Kyle Mills deserves a lot of credit for how he handled it. Um, not an easy situation, but uh, you know, Jeff and I both review those books, and Kyle's done a great job. I, I would agree with you. Um, so as someone who wants to become a best-selling author myself, you know, I'm plugging away, do small presses. You know, I probably sell more glances than I do anything else. Um, when we're talking about numbers, Allison, especially, you were mentioning your numbers were shrinking. How does someone like myself break out in a, in a sense because I'm fighting numbers that I can't control? So are both well, of you. Well, first of all, I said my mass market sales were shrinking, but the total numbers remained the same because the mass market readers were moving over to ebook. So okay. that's why I've been able to stay published. <laughs> and <laughs> and I was I was told by somebody that you all know that I'm not going to repeat an agent who basically said stagnant is the new up. So as long as you're not losing sales, they're like thrilled, you know. And so and. And that's the reality. But I would say it's really difficult to know how to break out. And it's really just trying writing and find – part of it is finding your voice, finding what totally resonates that you're excited about, that you can put that excitement on paper. Because if you can put that excitement on paper, then other people are going to get excited about that story. And just doing it over and over and over again. I, I sold my fifth book. I wrote four books that were total crap. I will never publish those books. One of them I did completely rewrite and self-publish it, but it was complete. The only thing that stayed was the first chapter, and because it was a premise, it was an assemp- attempted assassination, and it was a great opening scene. But the total story fell apart. I completely rewrote it, and I I think that's the kind of thing you just have to kind of keep doing it. Because you love it. If you don't love it, don't do it because it takes a lot. I wrote every night after the kids went to bed from 9 to midnight and then got up at 6 in the morning, got them to school, and went to work full time every single day for two years yeah. before I sold. And I think it, it, it wasn't easy, but I knew it wasn't going to be forever. Let me – and I th- again, I find myself 100% in agreement with what Allison said. Let me add, let me add something to that. John Grisham was, what, was once asked what makes a best-selling author or what gives you the best opportunity of being a best-selling author. And his answer was you publish a book a year the same time every year. And I think what we can take from that is – and let me give you another example. We mentioned Grisham. Grisham has had a remarkable career, but he's re- been remarkably consistent. There was a great book a few years ago named Def- called Defending Jacob by William Landay. Uh, terrific book, part legal thriller, part how far would you go to protect your child if, if he was accused of murder, even if you started to believe he was guilty. It was gut-wrenching, brilliantly written. It was a bestseller. But he has written, he has published, to my knowledge, nothing since. Now that was three or four years ago. And he didn't follow up great success with another book soon enough to build his brand. So I think the answer to your question, Jeff, is you have, another, you have book number two ready to go as soon as book number one sells or close to it. So you are ready to bring out a book the year after book number one comes out. Right. Now, or if, later. And now a lot of times if book one does well, obviously the publisher is going to say, well, book two is going to be a, is going to be a sequel, right? And now you're, you're betting in advance that the book is going to be successful. Because remember, if you wait to see how well book one does, and then you're going to write book two, it's too late because you're not, going to make, you're not going to get published for two more years instead of one. So you've got to make a decision, and you've got to have another book ready. Publish at least one book per year to start to establish your brand. 
Because if book one is not as successful as you want it to be, you have that to build on going into book two. And if book one is very successful, as was the case with Defending Jacob, you have something where somebody says, oh, wow, same guy wrote Defending Jacob. I love that book. And then they release the paperback and they put a, a teaser, you know, they put a teaser chapter at the end of the paperback and people remember your name. Now, when Bill Landy comes out with another book, no one's going to even remember Defending Jacob. So this is not rocket science. This is what Michael Crichton did. This is what James Patterson did even before he became such a brand that he was able to do, the, to do his written with spinoffs over and over again. This is, you know, I mentioned Grisham. I mean, to me, that is the secret, one of, not a secret, but as far as ethic goes, as far as what you need to do to put yourself in a position to be successful. And that's a key distinction between being successful and having a, a, an opportunity to be successful, make sure you publish a book a year and have book two ready to go so you don't have a lag between the first two. Well, I do think it's important to that you're – when I wrote my first book and sold it, I wrote it as a standalone. And when they bought three books, they wanted me to connect them. Well, I already had the second book written, they, and they bought the first book. I had to go back into the first book and – basically change one of the characters so that it would be the same character in the second book. And all I did was connect my three books was the three main characters, one for each book, all went to the FBI Academy together 10 years previous. So they were friends. And then, but they were three completely separate standalone stories that were connected by this common friendship. And I did that actually in the copy edits of the first book. I, I established that because they'd already bought the book, but said, oh, connect them. And they wanted me to connect them by the family, but I'd already killed off half the family, so that wasn't going to work, and I wasn't going <laughs> to resurrect them because it wouldn't have been as good of a book. And, you know, so you, you do write, I had this other book, and it was, just, it was just as good by making that connection. And, in fact, there was a little bit of more emotional depth because I had these three friends that had, you know, gone through adversity in the past, and now they were all strong women you know, fighting for justice kind of thing. But that was as far as the commonality went between the books. So you can do so many different things with a book as long as you keep writing. And John says a book a year because that's pretty much all they do in hardcover. But in mass market or ebooks, and there's a lot of ebook publishers out there that are good ebook publishers that get your book widely distributed, that do good covers and have good marketing plans, um, they'll do more. I mean, Mind you, I came from romantic suspense, and even though I'm writing mysteries now, it's really the romance market understands that when readers want to read something, they want to read a lot of it. And so if you're publishing, your your readers are going to read those three books a year. Now, what about the new thing that we're also seeing out there in publishing, like what James Patterson is doing, bringing up again, with those book shots? Uh, you know, the ah. short books, those little quick things. I mean, is that something that you think is going to be more of a trend with other big authors? Or, you know, do you think that it's just something that could be just saturating the market and maybe taking away sales from other things? I mean, how do you guys feel about those uh, things? Is it something that you're interested in? Have you looked at maybe doing it yourself? I think okay. it, in the case of Patterson, He's such a brand. Those books, those that was a deal that was orchestrated where they knew they were going to get the display at the cash register when they decided to do that. Short of that kind of display, there would be no market. There would be no market for someone like me doing that kind of, of thing. I think there is a market. You know, the Kindle single market. I mean, remains out there. I think what I've seen with Lee Child and Steve Barry. Who do who? Unlike a lot of other authors, are only doing a book a year. They'll do a bridge series, where six months or three months before the next big title comes out, they'll have something that links the the, the two books, the, the the one that they've finished, the, the previous year's book and the next year's book. There'll be something that comes in the middle, and they'll, it'll feature a lot of the same characters, and it'll keep their names out there. It's nice revenue. But primarily, they're, they're only sold for 99 cents. I call them bridge books. I don't think that's because they form a bridge between two titles. I'm not sure that's what they're actually called in the business. But the answer to the question, in my opinion, is I don't see any trend in what Patterson is doing because I just don't think there's necessarily a market for 
there, you know, at four ninety five, those 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 shorter books are still expensive. When you can get a four hundred page paperback for seven ninety nine, um, so I, I don't see that necessarily as becoming a trend the way coloring books were a trend a few years ago. Um, okay, thank I'm going think... to jump in here because I actually did explore doing that, and I'll tell you why I didn't. And this is going to get me in trouble because this is being recorded. But I bought the first four that came out and read them on the, a plane. I think it was a plane coming back from Thriller Fest. I read all four of them on the plane because they were very short. Only one of them was adequate. And I'm not going to say which one. One of them was so bad, I'm like going, how the hell did this ever get written, let alone published? It was so awful. And one exactly. of them was adequate. One of them was <laughs> adequate, but it could have been so much better had there been more meat to the story. It was like it was a good story, but it would have been a great story. I mean, and it, mind you, these are all written by the co-authors. Um, the problem is, so I, anyway, I emailed my agent. I said, hey, I'm thinking about, you know, what about this to get my name? You know, these would be really easy to write because they're all, if they're 30,000 words, I would That's be exactly stuck. what they are. Um, so I'm thinking these would be easy to write. I've written tons of short stories and novellas of that length. That's like a good length for a novella. Um, I could do this. He explored it. The payment was shit. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't know if I can say that. No, you it can say whatever the hell you want to They've on been your saying that all day. It's just a radio show. <laughs> and, and they knew I was a New York Times bestselling author, and I was thinking, oh, well, you know, this would be a good way to get my name out between books, you know, because I was thinking yeah. I could do, write this really fast, yada, yada, yada. But there was also no royalties. It was just a flat rate payment. You pay, you know, and I'm not against that. I think, you know, you pay me to write something. I agree to that. That's a totally great agreement for me. But this would not have been a good agreement for me. And then what the clincher was is I was reading a bunch of, you know, I follow up blogs and, you know, social media and everything. Nobody, not once, not one person ever acknowledged the co-author when they were reviewing these little book shots. That's and I'm thinking, okay, well, that's not going to help me if people don't recognize my name on the book. Right. You know, if they're only saying, oh, James Patterson's bookshot, good for him. It doesn't help me. And that was, and I know that sounds very conceited, but that's the primary reason I decide not to do it. That and the fact that oh. I felt I can self-publish the exact same story and make more money that he was willing to pay me. And even though the numbers would have been there, I mean, I would have been sold far more copies of that, people wouldn't remember me and then go out and buy my books. So it wasn't worth it. There's I'm only one post. author that's broken away from Patterson and been successful. Andy Gross. That was Andrew Gross. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, no and one else has written for Patterson has been successful on their own. I mean, how we, 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 we had Mark Greeny on the show, and he said he was literally the book signing where a guy walked up to him and said, oh, my God, I loved Red October. That's the reason why I started reading. And he's like, you do realize I'm not Tom Clancy, right? <laughs> You know, he's, he's actually dead, but thank you. So I told him, I said, you need to get a shirt that says, hey, I'm not Clancy, but, you know, I'm actually the author of the book. <laughs> you know, and I'm not, I'm not opposed to, you know, co-authors and everything. My, I mean, one of my closest friends on the planet is J.T. Ellison. And mm-hmm. a funny story. Well, great series with Catherine lo- Coulter. Great right, series. she has yep. a great series. So, I, you know, I love Catherine Coulter's books, and I love J.T.'s books. I mean, she has raw talent. She is so good. And my mom also loves both authors. I mean, she, she just loves Catherine. She has all of her books, and she loves JT, because I introduced her to JT. And I told my mom, this is when the first book was going to come out, The Lost Key, and I said, hey, did you know Catherine Coulter and JT Ellison, they're going to co-write a series? And my mom looks at me, and she reads tons, and she says, they don't have the same voice. I don't see how that's going to work. And I said, okay, I'll get you an arc. And so I had Catherine send me an ARC, and I gave it to my mom. I said, okay, just read it and tell me what you think, because I don't have enough time to read everything. And she read it, and she goes, oh, my gosh, this is so good. I think I like it better than both of them. Wow. (laughs) She loved the whole concept. She loved how their voices worked together. It sounds like Catherine, because Catherine does go in and make it sound like her. But JT, I think, adds a lot of the depth that sometimes, you know, Catherine is a great storyteller, but JT is, just has that emotion and that depth. And they really do write those books together. I mean, they write them together. And I don't know how other co-author arrangements work, but theirs is so successful, and I think it shows in the end product. Anyway, that's my little, that's my plug for two friends. Sorry. 
<laughs> no, it's good. Um, we're we're getting close to the end of the show already, which is we could go on for hours here, of course. I know, I told but you. Um, it's only fair to ask what you're currently working on. So um, I'll start with John with that question: What are you currently working on? Well, this is let me jump on. This will be the perfect segue. <laughs> That's the perfect segue into what I've been saying all night. Uh, I'll what's coming out next, uh, and, and that'll give you the perfect you know the the perfect way to, to conclude. Jul- on July fourth. Uh, a book I did called No Surrender is being released, but it's not my book. It belongs to Patrick Beicher, who's a Navy SEAL who overcame incredible adversity, including being told as an eight-year-old boy he was never going to walk again, and he ended up becoming a true American hero. Um, It's a memoir. It's what I call a narrative memoir, which has become my specialty in nonfiction, helping um, non-authors find their voice in nonfiction. It's kind of like making people applying fictional techniques. So No Surrender comes out July 4th, nonfiction narrative memoir. Then August 1st, I've got my first ever horror story coming out, Dark Light Dawn, uh, which and the early response to it has been off the charts, which is bizarre because it was so new and different. Because I am a horror fanatic. Yeah, I sent it to you. I sent you you the, the, the digital version. Uh, oh, okay, can, okay, can, okay, 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 good. But good, I'll send yes, it to you I'll again. Okay. Yep, okay, I'll send it to you. But, but in any case, so something else new. And then uh, come December, um, I'll have Caitlin Strong number nine, which is Strong to the Bone, which I absolutely love. I think it's, it, it's just, you know, if not the best in the series, it's, it's going to be right up there. So there's three books coming out in the course of the next uh, six months or so, three entirely different um, concepts, three entirely different genres and approaches, but three different opportunities. And that's what being a successful author today kind of implies, having opportunities. And I'm lucky enough to have a ton of them. So, But actually, this you'll have four come out this year. Are you planning to have four come out next year? That's right. It would be four. Um, I, I, you know, I haven't thought that far ahead. Um, so you're talking about 2017, 2018, um, it could be three or four again. Yes. Okay. Now, are you continuing the series with Heather Graham? Because that book, the rising has been out and is that series going to continue? I didn't hear you mention that one. That series, that series is going to continue. There'll be a little longer of a lag than I, that I would hope for because there, because you know, if you miss your, if you can't make it with a series, with the, the, the complexities of scheduling with two different companies and stuff like that and all that, it, you end up with a, with a bit of a lag. But, yes, Blood Moon will be the second in that series. And, uh, you know, I've, I, I've had a lot of fun with that. And there's, no, there's no better person in the world than Heather. Um, so it, it, it's, been, it's, it's been a great experience. Awesome. Allison, what you got coming out? What you got out now? What you got coming out? Well, um, I write two series. I write the Lucy Kincaid romantic thriller series. It started as romantic suspense, so that means that Sean and Lucy get to survive in every book, but that's basically the only thing. The 12th book just came out in March, Make Them Pay. Good title. (laughs) And then I have the Maxine Revere series, and Maxine started in 2014, so her fourth book comes out at the end of August. Now, I... The the first book did okay. The second book didn't do as good. The third book did a little bit better, and I knew this was my last contracted book, and I needed to come up with a really, really good idea if I was going to continue the series. So Max um, investigates cold cases, and so her book is Shattered. It comes out August 22nd, and she does cold cases. Well, Lucy has one cold case in her past. Her nephew, they're the same age. Her Her nephew died, was murdered when they were both seven. And it, his crime was never solved. I've had lots of readers write to me, hey, are you ever going to solve Justin's murder? And, you know, I wasn't because I had no idea what happened to him. It was backstory as far as I was concerned for Lucy. And so I said, well, no, if I ever figure out what happened, I'll write the book. But I didn't know what happened. Well, Max investigates cold cases, and Max figured out what happened. So I actually wrote this book to merge my two series, or not merge them, to write a crossover. So Max and Lucy are both going to be in the book. They're two very strong, independent female characters who are very, very, very different. 
and it was so much fun to write. I was nervous because I was afraid I wouldn't do them justice, but I had so much fun writing them, and I it's a little bit commercial of me because the Lucy Kincaid series definitely sells substantially better than the Maxine Revere series. Max is a little newer, and there's only one book a year, and Lucy has two books a year. So I was like, I was a little worried, but it turned out so well. So what I did to help promote that book is I wrote two novellas, a Lucy, Sean novella, and then a Max novella, and I'm packaging them together in Two to Die For that comes out on June 19th in ebook across all platforms because I don't believe in being Amazon exclusive. I think that if you're going to be – my books are available on all ebook platforms platforms from St. Martin's and Ballantyne. Therefore, I'm going to make sure my self-published books are available on all platforms. So that comes out on June 19th, and that was a lot of fun um, to be able to do that. Um, and I'm self-publishing it. My publisher said, fine, I can do novellas with my characters, and then I put the two novellas together. <laughs> so that was even better. And then Lucy... Well, and just know, hey, yeah. And Bruce Wayne still hasn't figured out who killed his parents, so it's okay. It was okay if you didn't do it. You know, just, just putting that out there. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to do it except I, I figured it out, and it was one of those things because it, there were no clues. And so, but Max is much smarter than I am, so she did figure it out. And then the next That's Lucy awesome. book, number 13, which I never planned to have that many books, but I'm, there's going to be at Baker's least 14. Dozen. That comes out. Huh? <laughs> um, no, there's going to be at least two more because that's what they paid me for. Um, oh, January 30th, and that's Breaking Point. And that's – I'm in the middle of writing that now. It's almost done. Man, yeah, busy, do you cross, busy you do guys you cross are. over, though, so um, your readers who, as you said, Lucy is more popular, you hope by introducing your Lucy readers to this other character they might go get those books? Exactly. Okay. I mean, it's a very commercial decision in the sense that it, it's a good story, and actually it's the best Max book I've written because there's a lot more emotional depth to the story just because of the subject matter. Um, so I was really happy with the book. But, yeah, I came up with the idea because I knew Lucy was popular, and I, wanted the, I thought those readers would like Max if they met her. Max is different. She's not romantic suspense. I mean, Lucy really isn't anyway, even though she has a husband now. Max is very, very different. She's a very strong, independent female character that is really kind of bitchy. And people comment on that. I'm like going, I, you know what, when I worked in the legislature, people called me a bitch too. And I had this one guy that worked for a legislator that said to um, my husband, who also worked in the legislature, I worked in the Assembly and my husband worked in the Senate, um, told my husband, well, I guess we know who wears the pants in your family because I called him on the carpet because he was about to do something illegal. And I was very forceful in my diatribe to him that if he did this, he would be fired. <laughs> so apparently I was known as the bitch around the Capitol. But uh, it was my job to protect these people from doing something stupid. And damn it, if they had to listen to me be a bitch, then that was what they were going to do. So they didn't do something stupid and get their legislator recalled or something. Anyway. Well, and, and I'll tell you what, you know, day. and my wife, and you know, you guys have met my wife, Shannon. She wears the pants in our marriage because I'd much rather just wear the underwear. So that's <laughs> the way I work at it. So, hey, but on that note, guys, I want to say thank you guys so much for coming on. It has been an awesome discussion. It has been fabulous to be able to talk with you guys. Wish you guys nothing but the best. And you guys are extremely busy writing all the books that you are. So, John, thank you so much for coming on. Allison, thanks you so much for coming on. It's great to talk with you guys, and we will see you guys um, in the future pretty soon. So thanks again so much. I'll see you in July. Yeah, I yes. will be there in July. Absolutely. Awesome. Looking How forward to seeing you fest. Yeah. All right, guys. Enjoy and take it easy, uh, and we will see you guys all later. Thank you, John. Bye. Thank you, Jeff. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. So what a fabulous show, Jeff. It was awesome. It was great. Everybody, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes to get shows like this all the time. And, you know, hopefully we can do this roundtable discussion again sometime in the future because it was fantastic, Jeff. So it was great. Oh, I completely agree. And uh, to our listeners who are not familiar with their books, go out and get them. They're good. Yes, make sure you go get them. 
search in John Land and search in Allison Brennan to find their websites, and that's all the information you'll need will be right there. So until next time, everybody, like we like to say, keep reading. See you next time. Bye-bye. Good night.